Welcome to the Sport Fuels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game. This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We are serving our community and providing a variety of resources to grow and win as a team in the sports we play and the life we live. We are your hosts. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we're so excited to bring you all things Sport Fuels Life. Well, hey, Karen, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you today. Hello, everybody in podcast land. <laughs> yes. So let's go ahead and get started. Just please, you know, share your story with us. Tell us who you are, where you're from. We'd love to kind of learn a little bit about you today. It's like I have to take this really deep breath and because I literally overwhelm, I literally overwhelm myself. I don't ever really know where to start. Like, do I go from like when I was born, I was, and then because I think my, um, I think everyone's life is in chapters, you know, if you're, if you're going along like a book style. And so there's, you know, this prologue of, you know, where it all started, my parents, Germany and all of that. And they emigrated to the United States and created this uh, amazing life for my sister and I. We went back to Germany. We lived there for quite some time, um, went to school there. Then we came back, you know, my parents lived apart, you know, a lot of flying, which is, which is really interesting because uh, so much of my life is, has been travel with sports. I mean, you're just always going somewhere to go somewhere, right? And um, my parents gave us a, a really solid foundation, just always being on airplanes, going back and forth to Germany, um, from Germany to America and back and forth. And so I have no relatives here aside from my father's deceased, but my mother and my sister, they live here. And then everybody else still lives in Germany. And I feel really fortunate about that. I'm, uh, my first language is German, um, which is really super beneficial when I was on tour because as American as I seem, culturally, I'm so German and um, like my outward personality is so American, so to speak, right? Whatever that means. And um, when I bust out the German language, people really trip about that. They're like, wait, wait a minute. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. And they're like, are you, are you American or are you German? And I said, you know, the, the brilliance of, you know, America is that you can be a lot of different things. So that's how that all started, and and oh, I'm trying to I'm trying to do the abridged version. I mean, went to high school in Clifton, New Jersey. Um, I'm a Jersey girl for sure. We keep her locked down. Um, <laughs> we'll have about my my director, my current director, Amy Rower. She always says, "Oh, I love New Jersey, Karen. Bring New Jersey, Karen." I mean, New Jersey, Karen, in Alabama doesn't necessarily always work. Just saying. So, uh, but I'm really proud of that. And I went to high school here, I went to college here at Kane University, um, and then uh, graduated. I moved to California for a minute. I mean, and, and tennis, <sighs> I don't even know, if, I don't even know where to go with all of that. Um, but uh, went to Kane University, got my undergrad, and then decided to move to Florida. Um, did a lot of things. I worked as a paralegal, criminal defense and civil litigation, um, really fell in love with the law and then decided that I want to change the world to go to law school. And so then that's when I moved to California and I went to law school. I hated it. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh. And then um, got engaged uh, and moved back to Florida. And then I was like, mm, we don't want to do this. So I broke my engagement. I think two of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make, um, one, breaking my engagement, and two, leaving law school. And I think for a lot of the listeners, I mean, there's these pivotal moments in your life that you can really reflect upon that have really changed your life, and these decisions were really hard. And you can look back on them and say, oh my gosh, thank God I did that. Because, you know, the wall becomes the curtain kind of uh, metaphor. And sometimes you're just so afraid of making a decision and you get stuck. And that's a lot of us. And so making these very poignant decisions in my life really changed my life um, for the better. Uh, or, or again, that's relative. That's so like when we're talking, it's so binary sometimes. It's like, it's good or bad. It's black or white. It's, you know, and I, and all of those things I try to, 
I try to really be present with that these things are binary. And so however you feel is valid in that the grayness of you know just your emotional intelligence. And so I will stop there and I can go on to the whole tennis story, but I actually I will uh, and Megan, I will let you ask me a question maybe as a follow-up to whatever I'm saying. Right yeah. Now. Oh my gosh. This is I mean you've it's already kicked it off with a bang. So thanks. <laughs> Um, I, I really love that, like we're diving into kind of the thought of making hard choices. Um, mm. a lot of times, at least in my own life, I've noticed that these things kind of come in chunks. So you're faced with like a lot of hard choices mm -hmm. at once, or, um, like when it rains, it pours, they say like, how close were your decisions to leave law school and to end your engagement? And I guess like what was that process like on a on a human level and then also like the duality of like seeing like oh my life is on this path or I could go over here like how did you navigate that I think it's a great question thank you for asking it and I, I think I think that is a constant I mean for me that is the decision making about a direction or just a decision is, is constant uh, when I'm always strategizing. As a disabled person, you're always strategizing to create a safe psychological space for yourself and for others who may identify similarly to you, right? And so to answer your question more specifically, I, uh, when I left law school, and I'm so grateful, I had, and had, yeah, back in the day, um, Bonnie Jones, she's Bonnie Jones Hunter now, who's a quad amputee, was instrumental. She and her daughter, single parent of her daughter, Chelsea. And she was five at the time that I was living. I rented a room out of their very beautiful home in Mission Viejo, California. So it's where I went to law school in Orange County. And she would see me every day, just be a complete mess about school. Like literally to the point, I had such high levels of anxiety as an overachiever, perfectionist, just really part of my culture, just wanting to do everything so perfectly. She literally would see me every morning leaving the house completely distraught. Like, and one day she came into my bedroom and she sat next to me and she said, um, Karen, like you really need to make some decisions in your life. This is, I know you don't want to hear this. I know you don't want to, you don't want to disappoint your family. And that's another thing I think we often, and in, you know, when we're younger or maybe even now, you never want to disappoint the people who have supported you or the person who has supported you in your, what, you know, your very amazing and fortuitous endeavor, especially if they're supporting you financially. And it was really hard, but her support, was so instrumental in my life. I mean, and not everyone has that kind of support. I mean, Bonnie is a person who had meningitis and like literally she's, she's an amazingly powerful woman and friend and confidant in my life. And she literally got sick one day and woke up and all of her fingers were missing on one hand, two on the other, both of her legs above the knee and below the knee and created this amazing life for herself and you know her advice to me was so powerful and it really encouraged me to to get some help right that's another thing culturally we don't often seek out someone to talk to professionally you know whether that's a counselor whether it's a psychologist or psychiatrist or to get some whatever that means for you grab some self-help books and so um the person that i was with um was an alcoholic and she was like, you know, you're really codependent. You're running all these codependent patterns. And at the time, I had no idea. <laughs> what, what, what does that mean? And she's like, let's just go to Al-Anon. And she literally came with me to my first meeting. And it was the first set of tools that I got in my toolbox. And it was the first time that I didn't feel alone in a process. And I was like, I couldn't even believe it. So a couple things happened. One you know, I really recognized my own codependence and how I enabled a lot of things in my life, including multiple relationships. And for, you know, for your listeners who, who are codependents or they really struggle with this, I just continue to encourage the process of healing because it's really difficult because 
codependence, it really creeps into your life in a lot of different ways. But, but that, you know, Bonnie Jones, oh my gosh, Hunter, she helped me get that help literally held big space for me, held my hand literally in this process. And I was able to make that decision in my third year of law school to leave law school and also leave my relationship. And that was, yeah, literally, it wasn't that long of a span. I would say I left law school and I moved back to Florida. Um, I had gotten engaged. And then shortly thereafter, I was like, mm, we can't do this. You know, it was really, it was really difficult. But again, recognizing the codependent enabler relationship, um, it's not healthy. You know, this addiction to, to romance and the, you know, the, all of the stuff that happens in codependent land. <laughs> wow. So that's the, that's the short version of the story. So this is so fascinating. And thank you first for sharing all of this. Um, I know that this is going to give our listeners such a helpful perspective and especially just opening up on challenges like this, I'm sure is difficult to talk to, but it will also help other people not feel alone in going through challenges like this. So timeline wise, here we are, you have left law school and you've broken off an engagement. So take us to the next steps. I literally, oh my gosh. Um, so I had this great personal trainer, Andy Fuentes. Um, I'm trying to remember, oh yeah. So living in Florida, I am very experiential, right? I don't like to just uh, take somebody's word for something. So I really like to just kind of dive into a situation. And while I was working as a paralegal, as I went, I moved back to Florida, I really wanted, I was going to the gym. Oh my God, such an interesting story. Even when I, when I retell it, I was going to a gym, Ronnie's gym, and it was the very first, like I'm talking late eighties, very first uh, 24 hour gym. And I would go to the gym super early, like five o'clock in the morning, but there would be all these people there. And my mind was blown. I'm like, what are all these people doing over here? And Ron, he would say, he's like, oh yeah, these are um, first responders, um, firefighters, police officers, nurses, doctors, everyone who works non-traditional, non-traditional hours. And I can't even, you know, at this time, I can't even process that. But then I started to think about it. I was like, I would like to work a non-traditional job. So what I did was I went and got a job down at this nightclub, this alternative nightclub in Fort Lauderdale. And this is so fascinating because literally getting this job changed the entire trajectory of my life. So tennis wasn't a part of my life at this time yet and or wheelchair tennis. And I, I just wanted to work at night, like to like three or four o'clock in the morning. What does that feel like when you have to function like that? So I became, I was paralegal by day and on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I worked this nightclub that doesn't exist anymore, but, um, and I was the cashier. And I would literally sit uh, in front of this big old cash register, you know, again, cash register back in the day. I would check people's bands, right, if they were 21. And I worked with like a series of bouncers. And this is the important part. Not only did I get this experience uh, working at night and into the wee hours of the morning and trying to function in a gym setting, right? Because those kinds of decisions create empathy. Like we were so judgy about literally everything, including myself. And working at night like that, and like you don't leave till three o'clock, 3.30, four o'clock in the morning, then you get a snack and it's five and then I'm going to work the next day, like, you know, that kind of thing. But most importantly, there was a gentleman by the name of Bill Howard. And Bill Howard, and to this day, he doesn't even think he did anything huge. And I think that's for a lot of people like that that conversation or the invitation or whatever that is for a person. What Bill did for me, he's a bouncer. And this is like one of these age old stories. And he's like, hey, you wanna play tennis? How much fun? Tennis, I don't even like tennis. Ew, it's a bougie sport. It wasn't my sport really. Like I was gymnast, volleyball player, basketball player right before I broke my back, right? But I'm just an all-around athlete, so just a gym rat, just want to, you know, be fit and healthy and all these things. 
And I was like, yeah, because he was fine, right? Very good looking, very good looking man. And uh, so we met up and he really did just want to play tennis. And so I played in my everyday wheelchair. I didn't know anything about a wheelchair tennis tour. I had no idea that this was like an actual sport because for 10 years after I broke my back, I, I didn't associate with anyone with a disability. Like I was just trying to live my life. And so he's like, yeah, we should play again. And I'm, I'm like, all right. And we really just played tent like tennis. And he's like, you, you know, one day he came to me with this magazine. The magazine was Sports and Spokes, which is a trade magazine for our um, adapted sports industry. And he points to this article. He's like, you really, you should go to this. You should go to this wheelchair tennis camp. I'm like, I'm like with, with wheelchair people. It's like, yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, Karen, it's in California, you know, and it's free. I'm like, I'm in. So I go, my whole entire life changes. I am not kidding. And I think uh, often, well, again, going back to the decision-making, it's like when you make a decision, like the universe just kind of collides and kind of goes, and that's the direction that you're going. And it's always filled with so much abundance and growth. It, it's mind-blowing to me every single time I talk about it. And yeah, I wound up um, going to Cota de Casa going to Vic Braden Tennis College, Vic Braden, literally my first coach, and, and so many others. I, I mean, there's so many pivotal people in my, my tennis career, my sports, my professional sports career. Um, whew, I, I mean, really, and I think one day I'll write that book because I really want to, I really want to highlight those people because they were game changers, you know, really. And that, that's how it all began. And from there, um, Mike Watson, Sharon Clark, and Mike Watson, Mike Watson's no longer with us, but Mike Watson became a very poignant person in my life. Um, he, I went to this camp and he was like, you know, you're really talented. And you know, when you're first starting something, you never think you're really talented. You're like, what? Especially if you're naturally talented. And then it takes these people in your life to kind of guide you. And they're, they're come in all different shapes and sizes, some sit, some stand, some walk, some crawl, they, everybody moves differently in your world. But I really believe that every single person, whether you consider them a positive, positive person or, or maybe not so positive person, they're, they're designed to be in your life to move you to a, a different direction or a different pinnacle in your life for this next level of growth and abundance. So I will stop there. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Well, first of all, thank God for Bill Howard. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I love your just overall curiosity and willingness to kind of open yourself up to these new experiences and then it leads to the next and you just keep saying yes. Right. Um, I'm struck by your comment about, oh, you mean with the wheelchair people, like since you didn't necessarily associate with other people who had right. your similar situation um, how was that integration for you? And, and um, did you find that like a built-in camaraderie or understanding or how was, how was that? <laughs> it was the peer group that was, it was the peer group that was forever missing in my life. And I think one of the things that we fail to talk about, especially high performance athletes and professional athletes and, and people, Disabled people, people with disabilities, however you identify, depending on your experience or, or your exposure, we don't necessarily address ableism. And when, you know, and sometimes ableism is discrimination against people with disabilities. And there's a big, you know, there's multiple definitions of this, but that, that is it in a nutshell. And sometimes those of us who do have a disability, we will internalize that. We will internalize this ableism as a means of survival. And what I, what I mean by that is we live in a world that is not designed. I mean, it's getting better now, but we live in a world that is not designed for, with, and about disabled people. And I'm talking about all people. So that's not just people with physical disabilities. That's people with intellectual disabilities, developmental disabilities, and the list goes on. There's, there's, you know, you usually only see what's the standard, a white dude in a wheelchair. That's what you're going to see in graphics. That's going to be, you know, it's changing now. It's changing, but that, that hasn't come without growing pains. And so 
going back to my own internalized ableism, you know, you use this as, as a means of survival in a non-disabled world. So, so much, um, and, I, and I live with an incredible amount of privilege. I'm a white woman. Um, I have a wonderful family, supportive family. Um, I have psychological safety. I have education, transportation, insurance, like in all these things that my siblings, they don't necessarily have that. So in order to survive in a non-disabled world, you try to be more like non-disabled people. The way you sit, the way you dress, your fashion, the way you speak. And, you know, culturally, it's like a code shift. So very often people will say things that they think is a compliment, like, wow, you don't look disabled. Or you're so pretty for a disabled person. Or, I mean, oh, there, there's just so many. Or like, oh, beep, beep, you know, slow down in your wheelchair. And I'm like, oh my God. And, and these, these are mild expressions. So very often you don't step into your role as an advocate and give people perhaps a different um, way of thinking about disability. I mean, my entire universe is entrenched in that now as an advocate, activist, and someone who works in policy with respect to you know, people with disabilities and who are intersectional and identify in very different ways. So yeah, it's a, it's a really hot, topic and i also believe i mean for myself because you know disabled people were not a monolith so i'm only speaking for karen Corb, and that is it is a life literally a lifelong journey ableism crops into your life in ways um, that are really challenging in order to get a your proverbial seat at the table um you have to act a certain way speak a certain way, look a certain way, dress a certain way to get to that next thing, as opposed to focusing on dismantling those hierarchies and those power infrastructures that literally force you to be this way in order to be what we deem as, I don't know, successful or that quality of life, which totally, you know, I get deep over here, you know, and the quality of life, um, Amani Barberin said it best. She's like, you know, the QOL is directly related to capitalism and productivity. And who are we without that? I mean, we're, you know, right now, think about it. Like everyone's reassessing their lives. Like, who are you without going out and driving your Tesla? Like, who are you without the gym? Who are you without getting your hair cut? Like all of these things that are external identifiers, you know, and you can't transcend what you don't recognize. You know, so, so again, that's, that's the short version of that answer. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for opening up just my perspective and others on this, because it just makes you realize how much you take for granted. And I guess I'm curious, you know, you've, talked about these external identifiers and we have so many things in life that give us that value or purpose or you know for me maybe it's through athletics like my value is based on how I perform as an athlete and I know that's going to come to an end one day um, so how do you adapt how do you shift what we hold on to so tightly and, you know, maybe it's driving your Tesla or whatever makes you feel validated as a person. How do you let go of something that maybe is past and move on to the next thing and accept that new stage in life? <laughs> I love that question. Um, again, I think I really believe it's, it's a process that not everyone is willing to embrace. I mean, God, how many men have I met, you know, that are still talking about their high school knee injury, right? I'm like, oh, okay, because that defines you. And I think the other thing is, and there's so many, it is, you know, you don't necessarily become self-reflective until something occurs in your life that creates a self-reflection, right? Like you don't necessarily start thinking about access, inclusion, or belonging until maybe you're the person that's not included, 
right? So the bigger question is, how do you transcend that? And again, I do believe it's a lifelong process. I, I'm working intensely on every day on transcending what I feel are these limiting ideologies that I have in, in my own brain. And, you know, they all come from places, you know, that where I've been, they're usually past things and things that I want to create in the future. So for me, it's always, how do I remain present and, and really center myself so I can look internally, get really quiet, really quiet. And that's hard for people. You know, the, more, the more I teach, you know, forms of meditation or um, MBS mindfulness-based stress reduction or work with our military, um, the more I realize how entrenched we are in these external identifiers. But this is, you know, these are systems. We have been taught to be this way. Like if you think about women, you know, who, uh, you know and I identify as being a femme, female. And who taught us that? Where did that come from? You know, and so for me, I'm always questioning these normatives. Like, why is it that I think this way? Like, or why is it that this group thinks this way? Or why is it that this person is bringing this idea or concept into this meeting? Where have they been? And that speaks to emotional intelligence, right? Because it's always, you know, if you're trying to change systems or more so dismantle them, and they're oppressive systems, anyone who identifies as different, whether you're a woman, you're gay, you're black, you're Hispanic, you're Latinx, whatever that is for you, you are not a non-disabled white man, right? You're just not. So there are systems in place that are going to um, subvert your success in some kind of way. So how are you working through that? Do you identify with whatever that is? Do you just close your eyes with your own privilege? You know, because I'm white, I, I can just not think about it. Or do you start to address that which is different? Do you start to do your own work? Do you start to learn, or more importantly, unlearn the things that you have been taught to you that are limiting beliefs and ideologies? And for me, that's my process. So I am always, I'm a lifelong learner. I, you know, I have a righteous rage about a lot of things. I don't like to be angry, but I'm angry a lot, right? But anger is a vibration that is technically sadness. So I'm sad. I'm sad about um, these institutional biases. I'm sad that we have such an incredible lack of equity in our world. And so with that sadness also comes this co-powerment of how do I learn the things that I learned? How do I unlearn the things that I've learned my entire life? And how do I bring that forward so other people can make different kinds of decisions for themselves. Because I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to bring you this little gift and you can do with it what, whatever you with. And that is absolute abundance mentality. And I want people to discover their own lanes. You know, but sometimes in order for people to discover their own lanes, I have to move out of the lane. And those of us who live with privilege need to really recognize that. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, this is so timely. And I feel like, you know, there's so much, at least like in my community, I'm noticing like a kind of a great unlearning that's happening. Um, a lot of deprogramming of just bad things that we've all kind of accepted as truth that we were taught or just society kind of implied. And we just went with it. Um, as a white person, I have really struggled to um, even communicate with family members about this thing that I am realizing is so wrong that not everybody is quite willing yet to let go of. Uh, but I'm curious, how, how do you navigate changing the world? Like this is like, this is such a big thing, but we're just like one person. So how, how do we take our one life that we have and translate it into making sustainable steps toward change? I think that's a brilliant question, Ashley. Thank you for asking it. Um, and it's big. I mean, and, and, and it's also relative to your own experiences. Like, you know, how do we, 
how do we, as our one precious life that we've been given, um, move forward and try to, you know, change it? I mean, technically, we can't change anyone. We can only lead by example, right? So I know for me, it is always creating encouragement and a safe space for people to communicate and ask questions and also prefacing that with I have really strong boundaries. I've had to learn how to set really strong boundaries for my own self-care um, and also share the information in a way that says uh, take this as your own and grow with it. However, when I'm asked questions, when I say preface this, I say, you know, I'm going to give you a very truthful answer. And often that truthful answer, which is my own reality, is, mm, is a bit painful for people. And, you know, and that's when, when my director often talks about, you know, oh, I love that New Jersey personality. I mean, people from New Jersey culturally are known to just be very direct. And when you're in a non-direct environment, you, you really have to be emotionally intelligent when you bring forward information. So you can still be direct in a more gentle way. But you know, who, does that, uh, who does that labor? That labors me. And so I choose. You know, I go in and out where I'm going to mm, provide that emotional labor. Because again, disabled people in every place, whether it's sport or a, a corporate environment or a nonprofit environment, we, the level of emotional labor that, that those of us who are different have to bring forward in order to create change is, first of all, it's not resourced and it's insurmountable. So going back to your question is, ugh, every, every conversation, it's about relationship building. And you know, I have this, um, let me bring this up right quick. I wanna share, uh, something that Dara Baldwin, who's a, who's a dear friend and colleague, she works in DC, and, and she wrote this recently in a uh, blog post. That's so powerful, I'm happy to share it with y'all later. And she said, and, and I believe this, it's about relationship building. You know, it is literally one person at a time to have these conversations. And, and she shared this the other day, and I, and I will read it. She said, if you know anything about relationships, then you know that in order to have a healthy relationship, there must be honesty, accountability, clarity, and respect. When one person has harmed the other, there must be truth and reconciliation. The idea that a relationship will move successfully forward without apology is why we are here in the first place. And when I read that, I was like, ooh, that is so profound. And she is spot on. Because so often in order to build, right, in order to change, the world or the people or the group. There needs to be a reconciliation of how that group or that person may have harmed you. And that's reciprocal. You know, I may have harmed someone else. And the willingness to apologize without it being qualified. Like, you know how often we do that too. Right? We're like, I'm really sorry, but I was running late or I'm really sorry, but I just, I didn't know. You know, the, we're in 2020, you know, there's no room for you not to know anymore, right? So, I mean, the information is so vast and yes, it is overwhelming. However, it is our responsibility to know, you know, to educate ourselves and to really kind of step into these arenas that are incredibly uncomfortable. You know, and, and another thing from Dara is, you know, she reminded me that, you know, your discomfort, Karen, in certain conversations, well, I want my, she's a black woman. And she's like, well, you know, your discomfort is, is, does not equate to people dying. And that was a game changer for me. So I have used that as a platform. I'm like, well, you know, and very, because again, as a white woman it is, it is my job in my white spaces to really bring these narratives forward. It is, it is not my friends of color. To bring these conversations forward. They lead the conversation. I listen, learn, bring it forward, you know, because there's just, there's just so much. Yeah, and so that's how I do it. And, and listening, 
There's a lot of listening involved because, you know, we don't know where people are from and what their experiences are. And I know that the endless journey for me is empathy. Like finding that one thing, as angry as I am with someone or a system, like what is it about that thing that I can relate to? And if I can get to that thing, that, that, whatever that is, then there's a chance. There is a chance for me to be like, okay, I can deal. We can have this conversation and let us work together on whatever that end goal is. Right. And there's, there's just so many different end goals, whether that's, I don't know, getting your first serve in the box, you know, hitting that ace, or it's changing the entire infrastructure where women are included in the main draw. There's a lot. Wow. We've taken this to so many levels and, you know, it's, this conversation has really seemingly come full circle. You know, when we started the conversation, you mentioned that you were always strategizing to create that safe psychological space. And now here we are addressing, confronting difficult issues and using your emotional intelligence, finding that balance between empathy to address those uncomfortable situations while still growing. Um, so it just kind of like, meets in the middle, it seems. So do you have or use any mindfulness techniques to help you stay so grounded in these sorts of situations? Yeah, there's a lot. There, there's so many. There's um, recently, well, I'm a big meditator. So I meditate every day. Um, I'm a pranic healer and um, Master Cho Kuk Sui, the practice of pranic healing uh, has really, that's been about eight years now. Um, I call in my guides. I mean, again, it, I've been practicing different uh, esoteric things probably since I was about 10 years old and prayer work, manifestation work, affirmations. I think most recently I'm doing, um, and I, oh gosh, I feel terrible that I cannot um, cite where this is from, but it was literally just brought forward to me. Um, I was watching TikTok and oh my gosh, the, the level of information y'all could get from TikTok is, is unbelievable, unbelievable to me. And so a couple weeks ago, um, a TikToker uh, brought forward the acronym of SAVES. And it is, it's like you do this practice in 10 minute in, in increments. And so as soon as you wake up, the S stands for silent. So it's, you set your timer, 10 minutes of silence. So there's, some, there's this level of meditation of just quiet. I prefer guided meditations, meta meditations on, on compassion. So for the past few weeks, I'm doing this, right? So I get up, 10 minutes of silence. And then the A stands for affirmations. So it's 10 minutes of affirmations. So I have a recording that I use and it literally is like, I am brilliant, I am abundant, I am beautiful, I am powerful, I am, like it just, right? And I say them out loud for 10 minutes because I also set my timer. And then the V stands for visualization. So another 10 minutes. And then I visualize, right? And, and visualization is, is a lot of different things and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So for athletes, it's visualizing your game, right? What does that mean? Like visualizing that first serve going to the backhand, visualizing your volleys or your returns, or, or visualizing how amazing you feel when you win the match, or visualizing handshaking at the net, right? Whatever that is for you. Um, for me, it's, again, visualizing what is it that I want my space to look like? What do I want the next year to look like? What, what you know, and, and visualizing healthy spaces right now, visualizing global health visualizing this anti-pandemic, visualizing this, uh, this global kindness that's happening, you know, and I, when I visualize, I visualize very certain, like very specific um, exchanges of energy that I've had either during the week or, you know, in the past or what, and literally thinking about what I want that to look like. And then um, S-A-V-E, um, and E stands for exercise. And so then you do 10 minutes of exercise, whatever that looks like for you. So I just bang out some yoga, right? And I do some breath work and I do some stretches. And it is, it is so, it's unbelievable how like you, now you're in a routine and you just kind of go like S-A-V-E. Okay, there it is, right? 
And there's an S to that. And I can't for the life of me remember because I took the S off. I was like, I can only do these 50 minutes right now. Right. And then, and then yeah. And, and so it's a process. And at night I use my headphones and I also listen to these affirmations. And um, there's a bunch of meditations that I have. I'm happy to share with your audience. Um, I also am certified in, in mindfulness-based stress reduction. And that came about when we were working. Um, I work at Lakeshore Foundation. It's an Olympic and Paralympic training site. And there, there's a lot more to that. Uh, but our, our, we have what's called the Lima Foxtrot program that's uh, run by Susan Robinson. It's amazing. And we noticed that uh, veterans um, and the mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, is a very powerful tool. So my director decided, like, this is a really great idea. You already do meditation, Karen. Why don't you get your MBSRs? So that's exactly what I did. So I have the privilege of running these MBSRs and these guided meditations through our um, Lima Foxtrot program. And the Lima Foxtrot program, I believe we have approximately seven to eight camps. In the past, they were done, you know, obviously physically together. And now we're doing them virtually. And that's been very interesting. But again, being able to be present and give people these gifts and these tools and, and they can take them as their own. But for me, it's a really important practice because I'm super intense. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> I'm really intense. I'm super passionate about everything. I cry a lot. Um, that's the other thing. Uh, I don't think we cry enough like we don't emote enough my sister who my sister Simone she has the cool name whatever she uh, was diagnosed last year with two types of very rare cancer in two different space places in her body um and both stage four and you can't even it's my only sister and you, you know that's for a lot of people in our audience is devastating right that is just like on just it shattered my entire world what i'm trying to say is my sister brought forward so many tools for me and she said when she gets really upset she does what's called scream therapy i'm like what i'm not screaming out loud simone she's like grab a pillow and scream into the pillow and you will be amazed at how great you feel and you know i was like so resistant like so many of us are so resistant to like these new modalities it's like that's stupid i don't want to do that i tried it took that pillow like after you know all of us go through these meetings and you're just so triggered sometimes and wait i don't want to say triggered but you get so upset about things and i just take a pillow and i scream in it super healthy basic takes you five seconds or for however long you're screaming and it feels really great. I encourage everyone. That's a super easy one. And uh, yeah, just again, the psychological safety, being able to be in a space where you feel safe enough to, to feel, you know, and having these really vulnerable conversations. I don't think we're vulnerable enough. I'm a big communicator. I like clear communication. Um, I think uh, we, are, we live in a society of a lot of passive aggressive communication and you know, when we have clear communication, it's amazing what happens, you know, but, but people generally speaking, they don't necessarily like um, to be vulnerable. And that, again, this is years of having these conversations and just studying this. It's like people don't like to be vulnerable because they don't feel safe. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. The more we do it, the better we get at it. It's true. I'm curious what you think like we have a lot of high school and college coaches and athletes who are listening and like, what, what do you advise them to do to create these spaces within their teams that are safe for vulnerability and openness and um, create a sense of inclusion for all people? Oh, that's a great question. It's so personal. Uh, I think right now there's just, there's so much lostness which begs this question that you just asked, like, what, what do we do? Sometimes it's in the not doing. Sometimes that's in the getting real quiet because we have been taught to fill every waking moment with something that eases the whatever emotion that you're feeling. 
And as athletes, you know, whether you're a recreational athlete, whether you're a professional athlete, high performance, Olympian, Paralympian, um, whatever your jam is, there comes this, you know, definition of proverbial success. What does that look like? And the question is for me that I always extend to others is, okay, so you won the match or you won the game. You got your gold medal. What's next? When you've reached the whatever it is that you're reaching, what's next? So to ask yourself that question, it's like, is this who really who I am? It doesn't solve that, yes, I want to get that D1 scholarship, the D2 or D3, happy with that, right? Like, I, I want to get my education, or I want to be the number one player in my state, or I want to shoot, you know, the 3,000 and break this basketball record. Or, and, and that is the same for disabled and non-disabled people you know, athletes, we all want this thing. But my question is always, okay, what happens after you get the thing, right? What is the bigger question? And which goes back to what I originally said, which is, you know, who are you without that? It is hard for people to reconcile the just. I am just a, but technically you're ne it's never just because you know you are an incarnation and I could just go on and on about that. However, it doesn't answer like, what's that advice? You know, some people just don't wanna get quiet. So I would encourage finding your groups of like-minded people. It's easier to do that now in social media platforms um, because we're so virtual right now. And, who are you connecting with? I can't remember who I heard this from a long time ago, and I wish I wish I could remember. So I apologize, whoever I'm taking this from right now. It's like, what is your atmosphere? So the atmosphere being like, what are you breathing? Ah, oh, Reverend Paul Gagne, yes. Science of mind. Okay, he, he gave this. And he said, um, one morning he was talking and he said, like, what is your atmosphere? What are you breathing in? And I remember thinking in the audience, I was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean breathing in? What is that? He's like, what are the books you're reading? Who are the people that you're associating with? What are the movies that you're watching? What are the phone calls that you're having? What are the text messages you're receiving? How are you defining what your atmosphere is? Because your atmosphere can always change. Even if you're in right now, we're all like, you know, quarantined in our spaces and home and, and with people that maybe, you know, what we think is toxic, right? But you can, I don't want to call it escapism, but again, what are you watching? What are you listening to? What kind of music? Like what, what are the Hertz vibrations that we're talking about? Like, what is it? And you define that. Now, I also, again, want to recognize my privilege in this conversation. Not everyone has internet. What do you do then? Like I'm a big nature person, go out and hug a tree. Like I find that is a, that is a big game changer, like breathing air. But again, privilege. Can people go safely out of their homes? Do they live in an environment where they have that psychological safety? Like, and these are all parts of systems. Not everyone has that. And until we get to that place of equity, I mean, we've got a long way to go because, you know, um, I don't, I don't think I have to share or go into detail about that, but there's, there's a lot that we have to learn and unlearn in these processes. And I also encourage young people specifically, oh, not even necessarily young people, all people, if there's something going on, it's really, if you can talk about it or you can communicate about it, however you communicate, whether that's journal, whether that's a text message to a friend, whether that's, um, I don't know, counselor at your school or someone that you feel safe with, share that. You know, whatever that burden that you feel like you're carrying, because we always, all, I mean, this is just psychology. We always feel alone in our own, whatever that devastation is. And I'm not a fan of comparative suffering. 
Like a lot of people will look at me or any one of my colleagues, friends, people with disabilities and be like, oh my God, you know, I used to be in a chair and for three weeks and I'm walking now. And, and like, you know, listen, for me, a hangnail is a hangnail. And I say it all the time. Pain is pain. However, it, however you experience it as a person, I'm not here to judge that. I'm not here to be like, oh my God. Well, I'm in a wheelchair and you, you know, you're just talking about your stupid your hangnail. No, that's not the jam here. That is not what's happening here. Because that's about, again, like what Dara said, it's about a respectful relationship. I honor whatever that is you're experiencing. Because, you know, sometimes that one little conversation or that dismissal of someone's emotion can be a, such a life-changing event for that human being for the next 15, 20 years where they never express themselves again and I, like going to coaches i really want coaches to be mindful about that and the information that they're bringing forward because we are teachers and we are influencers and there are young people that look to us for guidance be careful about your own lives get right and ready and know that you're this person for a lot of people you know, that introspection, I think, is really important. And again, that, that, is, that is very personal to me. I've had, oh my gosh, I've had so many amazing coaches in my life that were willing to tell me the truth, even when it didn't feel so good. And it really, and, and also provided that psychological safety. Coach Chuck McCune, Dan James, Jason Harnett, <laughs> Paul Walker, I mean, there's, there's so many, the list goes on and on and on. Every single player I've ever played against has provided an avenue for my success. And I, I wanna tell students, athletes, to think about their games as such, whatever the sport is. Because ugh, that adversity sometimes is, is really the piece that helps you grow. It's so strange, you know, but again, it comes from that binary way of thinking. And our systems are so binary. It's like win, lose. And my mother, my mother always said, like if I'd be devastated about losing a match or something like that. And she's like, Karen, or she would say, Karin, that is ein Winner und ein Loser. She has an accent. She would say that. I wish you could bring her over here and she could say it. Uh, she uh, really encouraging in that space to, to get me to recognize, okay, that this is just how it is. It doesn't define you. Right. And she would also say this to me. I was really upset. And to this very, this is this very day. She'll say, you're going to go to sleep. When morgen ist ein neuer Tag. Translated, that means tomorrow is a new day. And I'll tell you something that really works. You know, sometimes just how getting a little rest, um, abolish time. I follow them on Instagram. Powerful. Um, they always talk about rest as resistance. You know, we don't, we don't, you know, we're, we come from a culture that's always about productivity. Sometimes, you know, it's about rest, you know, and that self-care that, I mean, we're, we're starting to see that now. Like we are, uh, what I'm noticing in a lot of spaces is just this incredible numbness, you know, and I, and I want to say to our listeners, I, I feel your numbness and it is okay to have that because, oh my gosh, it's coming at us in ways that we have never experienced before. We are living in a space of collective trauma. And again, I said this earlier, you cannot transcend what you don't recognize. So I say that out loud a lot. You, you know, because very, the conversations are like, I don't know what's going on with me today. I don't know why I'm feeling so weepy. I'm feeling so upset, I'm so emotional. And I am going to be that person that says, by the way, you're right on point. <laughs> We're all feeling a bit emotional. We are, and some more than others, depending on our privileges, right? And, and really just holding real space for people who are feeling whatever it is that they're feeling and saying, it is okay. At the very baseline to say, it is okay to feel that. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm so moved by you as a person and this interview. 
So I guess kind of shifting gears a little bit here, um, we spoke a little bit on it, just kind of that concept of reaching goals. And, and sometimes that's the biggest beauty is in the journey of chasing goals. And then what do you do next when you reach them? Um, so I guess I want to shift this back to you a little bit here. And I'm curious kind of what's going on in your career now and, you know, maybe something that you're excited about what's coming up next. Whew, there's, Oh my gosh. I just look, I gotta take a deep breath about that. Uh, my, I, I have, um, I work with a brilliant team of people at Lakeshore Foundation, uh, specifically in my department. Um, my amazing supervisor, director, Amy Raworth, and my colleague specifically in my advocacy policy department, Amelia O'Hare. She is also a powerful young lady. Um, amazing what she will be creating, and I know this, she's an urban planner, just going to grad school right now, just started grad school, brilliant, uh, going to be a game changer. And I think for me, again, in my position is, and I, I get to work in a lot of different spaces, in built environment spaces with um, MPOs, like metropolitan planning organizations, and I get to work with um, the CDC, um, with just a lot of powerful organizations in the spaces of transportation equity, um, rural endeavors, most recently ran an entire, ugh, exhausting. Uh, COVID-19 task force was on a special POPs group uh, just as a liaison, I don't want to say just, but as a liaison to our health department, um, bringing forward uh, survey results, like what, you know, in the needs assessment. So what I'm excited about is disability justice. Because we're all, we have always historically talked about disability rights which is that, that stepping off point of creating inclusion and access in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so many people have been instrumental in creating that. However, disability justice, when we're talking about uh, or wearing our intersectional lens or lenses, um, Patty Byrne, SINS Invalid is a group out in uh, California. In my opinion, one of the most powerful groups uh, in our country today, a, a collective, and, and it's always about collective liberation. So again, as a white woman in a very specific organization and a very specific lane, it is critically important for me to recognize the people, specifically queer people of color uh, with disabilities, who are bringing this next level, and, and it's, it shouldn't be next level, it should have always been the level of advocacy and policy change forward. So everything that is happening in our country today, the current status with social justice movements, um, really needs to be inclusive of disability justice. Because what, what I'm excited about again is people with disabilities being their whole selves, having access, inclusion, and equity, specifically in diverse places and spaces where they have never been included, where we have never been included. And there is, with disability justice, there's, there's principles to be followed. There's um, about this collective uh, of people, there's collective liberation. It's like, you know, the adage, like, we're not all free until we're all free. And continuing to have these very difficult conversations with, dare I say, conservative groups or more conservative groups um, that may not see disabled people as 100% whole people, which goes back to that whole ableism piece that I was talking about earlier, even in social justice movements. Like when you are, let's just say, um, LBTQ, um, <laughs> look, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God. LGBTQIA plus, okay, Karen. And we were just, I was just having a conversation this morning about acronyms and how, why aren't we actually saying what the acronym stands for? Like so often we're talking about BIPOC, like, no, that's really, you know, I find that to be really disrespectful. Or in the UK, the, the language of BAME, right? B-A-M-E, it's like, why are we not addressing 
each letter in the acronym? Like, is it because e it's easy? Whole nother conversation. At any rate, disabled people belong to all of these categories. And so for the first time in sometimes forever, disabled people are being included in these other identifiers. So you could, again, I'm a white woman with a disability. I'm a white woman with a disability who happens to be a chair user. What if I was a black woman who was an amputee, who was a chair user, and who also identified as queer? So you've got all these different intersections. And you know, if you're looking for your space, like where is your space? Because let's just say you want to go to a meeting. Is the meeting, is the meeting location even accessible for you? If you are deaf, do they have a sign language interpreter? Like, can you be part of these other social justice movements? And so consistently working in these spaces and just sometimes it just requires a sentence. And if I had a penny for every time I heard this, oh wow, Karen, I never never thought about that before. So there's so many of us that do this work. I am just a small piece in this gigantic, you know, it's behind me, my big cog, this big wheel. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not always gonna get it right, um, but that's not what I'm here for. Like, I, I'm not here to, to get it right. Like, I am here to move it forward and get out of the way of people who have been historically oppressed, so pressed and marginalized. Like that's what I feel my job is consistently. Um, I'm excited about uh, our wheelchair tennis movement. I'm excited about the Paralympic Games. I am excited that we recently had a name change, if you are not familiar. At, uh, it used to be USOC, now it's USOPC. I'm excited that we have the Olympic and Paralympic Museum. Like all of that came with a tremendous amount of work by my peers, myself, the Athletes Advisory Council at the USOPC, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. That's what USOPC stands for. There is highly intellectualized people with disabilities who happen to be athletes and who are retired athletes that are working in the space. The IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, is now addressing what's called the CRPD, which is the Convention on the Rights for Persons with Disabilities. Like there are these connectivities that are happening right now that are so powerful and profound. Like I never thought I would see them in my lifetime. I really didn't. And I, I just, this level of integration that's happening in so many different ways, um, these, these next gens, they are doing really powerful work. And when I say next gens, I'm talking about those with disabilities who are just stepping in these spaces, just unrivaled, just really, really, really powerfully. And I'm so grateful because maybe one day I can retire. That'd be great. <laughs> Again, the other part is, is elevating these talents, you know, making sure that they're in powerful positions to get to that next level. Because very often those of us who are older or those of us who've been doing this work a little bit longer, we're gatekeepers. And for whatever reason, we don't allow or we do not promote and we don't elevate. Like that is something that has to stop. Recognizing your own space. You know, whether you're a coach or your teacher or you're an administrator, it's like that person's talented. I'm gonna make sure that that person gets to that next level. There's not enough of that. There really isn't, um, and I encourage that. It's literally, I, 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 that's, that's what I feel like I really uh, want to continue doing. Um, I want more people to see representations of themselves, specifically disabled people, and specifically women, and then women of color. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a lot. You a lot. are so fantastic, and I like, just have so much respect for you and your great wisdom that you've shared with us today. And I mean, honestly, like where can our listeners connect with you and follow along with your journey? Are you like, do you have a social media or website you want to yeah. share? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I am literally K-R-I-N-K-O-R-B on all of my social media platforms. I kind of locked myself down on Instagram. I'm not a big TikToker yet. 
still trying to figure that one out. Uh, and it's time. It really is time. I admire my colleagues who are really active on their social media platforms. Um, I am a department of 1.5, and there's just a lot of work. It's, it's, I don't necessarily have a lot of time to create original content, so I'm a big reposter on my Twitter. Um, there's so much there's so much to be learned from so many other powerful people, especially on TikTok, Instagram, um, LinkedIn, same thing, on the business platform. And I'm always trying to elevate other people who are disabled. You know, creating our own network is really, really important. Any, you know, if you think about it, so many marginalized groups of people, that's exactly what has created so much success. They're always internally elevating their own. And that's what we as disabled people really need to do to create this impact that we're looking to create. You know, that you, you talked about it earlier, Ashley, that sustainability. Um, you know, and, and it takes a lot of work. Uh, and yeah, have people, you know, my same thing, email karencorba gmail. I mean, feel free to reach out to me anytime if I can help in any way, provide resources. Um, Lakeshore's emails is lakeshore.org. Um, and then there's the National Center on Health, Physical Activity and Disability.org. That's NICPAD. I mean, again, I can, I can send you that link. You can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just, there's a tremendous amount of resources and I encourage your listeners to really be reflective and introspective because that's where I believe all the answers are. So well said. Oh my gosh. I hate that this conversation has to end, but I'm sure you have other things you have to get to for your day. Um, thank you for spending so much time with us. This has been so incredible. We just, we love you so much. <laughs> yeah, you guys are great. I really, really, really appreciate the opportunity to just share my story and share things that I'm really passionate about. Well, your passion is shining bright through all of the things that you shared.